You're listening to MHD Off The Record. On this episode, we speak with Rudy Espinosa, the Executive Director of Inclusive Action for the City, a nonprofit community development financial institution based in Los Angeles, whose mission is to bring people together to build strong local economies that uplift low-income urban communities. Under his leadership, Inclusive Action helped legalize street vending in LA, has deployed over $2.5 million in low-interest microloans to underserved entrepreneurs, and co-created a unique commercial real estate initiative that preserves small businesses in gentrifying neighborhoods. Enjoy the show. Charisma is a big part of being an organizer and a social justice leader. Um, When did you know that you sort of had like you had the ability to move people to get people to inspire people to use their own power, which is the sort of the key thing of being a, a organizer to realize they had power and then to use it on their own behalf. Well, I think after uh, I was politicized in college, after that first ethnic studies class that I took, yeah. um, there was a, a meeting. I started to get involved in various groups. So I got involved in Mecha, which is, uh, is a Chicano civil rights uh, organization in many schools across the country. And we had like a book club where we were reading books and studying and getting, you know, learning about ourselves. And I think as I was uh, describing what was in that book, I started to get really passionate. Yeah. And then um, I would just be myself and sharing what I was feeling. And then after people were like, dude, that was like really good. What was that? You know, like, and then I just started to note that. I see. But before that, I was a really, um, I still am, and I'm an introvert. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm very shy when I'm not working. <laughs> And before that, I was I was totally that person. Yeah. Yeah. There's a a quote that I heard from a movie that I won't name because it'll discredit the quote. But the quote is everyone's charismatic when they're talking about something they're passionate about. And it's kind of what you're what you're you're describing. Uh, So you grew up here in Southern California in the in the sprawling exurbs of the Covinas, Uh, went to high school there and ended up at uh, Riverside. What was happening politically uh, for people in college at the time you were uh, matriculating? Well, I think back then, I mean, that was in 2000. Um, one of the key, there was a lot of local issues in Riverside. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of issues related to the the level, the, the quality of education that was happening in the Riverside community with the high oh, schools. Oh, really? Okay. But a lot of my colleagues were organizing around how do we improve and build a pathway for those students to get into the UC, the UC system. There was a this is University of California's in their neighborhood, and many of them were could never access it. And that was you were in college post two oh nine, so that's kind of when Riverside became the sort of the people of color campus. Totally, of the UC system. That's why I got in. <laughs> no, I don't know if that's why I got in, but it certainly was uh, certainly the only UC that accepted me. Mm-hmm. And it was seen back then as like this is like where all the people of color are the most the most diverse UC in, yes. in the system. Now I think UC Medicine has taken that. Ah, you know? okay. How did that? color your experience being a business major at UC Riverside? I did, well, I think in the first year that I was there, I, I noticed it, but I didn't think too much of it, you know? Um, I went to Covina High School in the suburb, but it was a really diverse high school. It was like probably 40% Latino, 10% Black, 20% Asian, you know? So I kind of grew up with a lot of different types of folks. Um, and I didn't really, it didn't, I didn't, uh, even though I was in it my first year at UC Riverside, I didn't, I didn't really, it didn't really clock in for me what was going on and why we were all there <laughs> until I started to learn. 
until I, until I started to realize the reason why, you know, we, we were all we were all in this one place and why we didn't get into the other schools, perhaps. <laughs> I remember uh, being a youth organizer at that time and at the time you were going to college and the Auto Community Coalition, we sent a lot of kids to UC Riverside. Um, I went. Do you know a woman named Sean Quayla? No. Oh, wow. You guys are there at the same time. Interesting. Uh, you know Sean Quayla, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know Sean Quayla. <laughs> Funny enough, I was actually one of the kids that got into UC Riverside. Right. I, I didn't, I ended up not going. Oh, why? Because I had another opportunity to later go to USC. Oh, yes. Cool. Yeah. That's how that goes. goes. <laughs> um, so you're there, you're studying business, you sort of like a lot of organizers. Uh, or a lot of people who do politically political work, they don't start off on that path. Mm-hmm. Um, so what path did you start off on? And then when did you know, like, hey, I'm going to head this direction instead? Well, I tell folks that the truth is when I was young, I wanted to get rich. Yeah, that, that was my only goal in going to school. I grew up in a household with a single mom who was a waitress that took care of me and my brother for 35 years as a server in, in a restaurant. And uh, she has a third grade education from Mexico. So it's like this is a very, yeah. you know, a similar immigrant story. So she was like, you need to go to school to make money so you don't have to work like I do. And so my intention of going to college is like, I need to get rich and take care of my mom. So I picked business because naturally, if you're a business administration major, you're going to make money. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so I was going through the motions of that. And um, until I took that ethnic studies class, which was like an an elective that I kind of fell into. And then I was like, I was shook, Mm -hmm, you know? mm Mm-hmm. And after that, my path completely changed. Not completely, but it definitely veered. I see. And so you you come out of college, uh, and what's sort of the first issue that you work on that sort of draws you into the vortex that is the urban core of Los Angeles? Well, um, after I I was sort of politicized halfway through the four-year program, and I couldn't afford to change my major. So I just stuck with it and I ended up attaching a minor in ethnic studies because I wanted to learn more about myself and other other movements. And I ended up uh, I didn't want to work for the man with a business degree. Yeah. And so I basically ended up going to school again, kind of to buy time. And then UCLA accepted me in their urban planning program. Uh, and uh, I fell upon urban planning as like a study of the city, study of cities and communities and all the different elements within it. And I was like, man, this is great. I can learn about all the things and hopefully they'll figure it out. And what happened was that in grad school, I realized that I, even though I didn't want to make money for myself necessarily and enrich myself only, it was really about how do we move capital in an equitable and, and progressive way. And we did have to understand how capital moves in communities and how it doesn't. And that's when I started to refine my focus in my career. So after school, I started to do uh, consulting with banks, helping Mm -hmm. them think about how to invest in neighborhoods. And that's how I really started to get into work here in in, in the neighborhoods of L.A. Oh, wow. Yeah. I I landed literally in Boyle Heights and working with the groups on the east side and helping them. One of my clients was Bank of America. Like I had to help these groups understand how Bank of America worked and then vice versa and figure out how we could cut deals to sort of bring resources to this neighborhood that didn't have any. And then the other neighborhood is Pacoima. Really? Northeast San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I realized you worked in uh, Pacoima. Yeah. So you do that work and uh, what are some of the projects that happened during that time that you're proud of? Well, I think that I was proud that we were able to get hundreds of thousands of philanthropic dollars into these communities, into some of these groups, into some of the nonprofits that were already doing a lot of work because we were able to educate these institutions about why they mattered and why the work that they were doing mattered. 
And I remember meeting with like uh, Maria Brenes at Inner City Struggle and, yeah. you know, Cynthia from Proyecto Pastoral. She's not there anymore. But, you know, there's these groups that were doing amazing work, El Nido in the Valley, like really important groups that the banks did not understand. They just didn't understand. Them. They, worked, they, yeah. they spoke different languages. Yeah, yeah. They were coming in and they were like, this community is not our customer segment. Why should we even care what was going on? Yeah, I remember during that time, I don't. I know you probably work now with Carolyn Hull, mm -hmm. who works in the economic development decision. I was at Community Coalition. You know, Community Coalition is as nonprofits go, Yeah. you know, financially solvent, raises its budget every year, no problem, mm -hmm. had a good savings. And, and I remember we saved up almost 50% of the value of the building. Wow. And we wanted to buy it. So we go to the bank and I was like, well, because I have a little bit of a real estate background. Mm -hmm. I was like 50% down. Anybody will get us a bike. Anybody like, there's no risk there. Right? Yeah, no, we have 50% down and we have great finance, you know, spotless financials. I'll never forget a banker said to me, we'd sooner give you the money than lend it to you. Wow. And that was the moment when I realized like, oh, I have no idea how this works. Mm -hmm. And and you get a window into why there's seem to be all these investment opportunities in our community and nobody sort of takes control of them. Nobody takes advantage of them. It's, you know, it's uh, it's institutional racism. And it's interesting because some of these institutions have a lot of people of color that, that work within them. Mm. And, yeah. and yet they still are sort of bought into this idea that, you know, people that look like us are not good investments. Or why would we why would we lend to Marquise? Like, nah, yeah. dude, he's not going to pay us back. Let's just right. give him a grant. He's a charity case. And I think that that's, that really fires me up mm -hmm. because I believe that our communities have are like amazing. Like we lead, we create culture, we, cre we create these opportunities and these institutions are outdated. Right. You know, right, right. so as a young person back then, my job was kind of to go in between. And I worked with a, a good group of guys that, that I, you know, admire. And they taught me a lot of like the importance of neighborhoods and communities and understanding who are the leaders. And sometimes they're nonprofit leaders. Sometimes they're, you know, you know, block, you know, a block, neighborhood block leads, you know, and so th that's all that matters. So you you do that work and then you take what I think is a really creative and aggressive uh, position on dealing with economic issues for poor people uh, through inclusive action, you know, really working on street vending, which is the most basic level of, of any economic activity. An everyday person makes something or takes some materials, adds value to them and offers them for sale. Mm -hmm. And of course, our system creates so many barriers before you can actually be a legitimate business person. Yeah. Um, that you all started to organize street vendors to see if we could come up with a better system. Mm -hmm. That's true. We did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, street vending was something that was like in, it was like 2008, 2009 when we started to like convene and talk about this and it was in the recession. Uh, okay. It was, that was what was, that was the catalyst of the conversation of how were our communities responding to the recession? And as we were talking about the problems, we were talking about, man, look at our, our, our neighbors, like they're still hustling and still trying to make a way and the vendors were out here doing work and so the beginning for us at inclusive action was a research project where we serve we were beginning to survey vendors on the east side like what are you guys doing like why are you mm -hmm. selling this stuff and mm -hmm. like wh what are you dealing with here in the public right away and many of them were like i'm selling this because i don't have a job i'm selling this because i do have a job and i'm just not making enough um, you know, do you know that I'm dealing with some, the city's cracking down right here and I had to have the citation now, or do you know that the brick and mortar is charging me rent to be on the sidewalk? And we started to really uncover a lot of issues. And for us, street vending is a portal 
to equitable economic development. It's like this belief that if we take care of the most vulnerable micro entrepreneurs and, and really design programs around them, the benefits will trickle up to others. If we could take care of these, you know, that one entrepreneur that's selling something out of their car and really trying to make a way, if we could get really good at supporting them, we're probably going to be pretty good at supporting brick and mortar businesses and other companies in our neighborhoods. And so street vending has been a, a huge political campaign for, our, for us and for our coalition. But at Inclusive Action, it also spawned some really like some 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 capital programs like our microloan fund that came out of the vendor saying, Rudy, if we ever win, like literally at City Hall in the hearings and like, man, if we ever win this, like no one's going to get lent to us to get a card anyway. Oh, wow. That's okay. how it started. I see. OK, the, the vendors were like, Rudy, no one is going to lend to us anyway. And I was like, really? Like, let me let's do the research. And sure enough, they were right. And so we're like, maybe we need to start doing doing it ourselves. So our loan fund that's now certified by the Treasury as a CDFI came out of that that recognition from the vendors saying no one's going to give us that capital if we wow. win. What is a CDFI? So a CDFI uh, stands for a Community Development Financial Institution. And basically, it's a certification that the Treasury created, the federal government created. It was it was Bill Clinton actually created this program. And basically, it, it certifies a lender in a community as a lender that's doing that doing community lending. So what I I describe it to my friends, it's like a, the Yelp sticker on a on a on a store, right? Like yeah. they've been doing the work, but you get that Yelp sticker like people love us on Yelp. You know that they're good. So the CDFI is that. And so what it does is that it actually not only uh, it's a it's a label of trust for the public, but it also opens the doors for resources from banks and other people that want that they get a little extra benefit if they invest in you. So you said that investing in, for example, street vendors and those who are, you know, I guess you, I've got the term that you use, but basically the most vulnerable entrepreneurs yeah. that are out there. You said it can trickle up. Yes. What does that mean and how does it trickle up? I just think that um, there's amazing businesses of all types in our city that are not getting the support they need. And a lot of it is the way that we're designing programs for them. And if uh, equity to me means investing in the most vulnerable and going there and street vending and street vendors are some of the most vulnerable entrepreneurs. And so if we design a program that works for them, mean, meaning that we get a loan to them, meaning that we get coaching and assistance to them at where, where they are, if we connect them to procurement opportunities or other sort of city resources, if we could do it at that level, it in theory, should it, it'll make it easier for us to serve others. Does that make sense? So, so the idea is that it'll trickle up, the, the, the concepts will trickle up. Because, because it's basically it's uplifting the community, the families that they're feeding their families. They're and, able to, and, and you could replicate that model with other segments of of the business ecosystem. So I got a bunch of questions, but one of the questions I have, and you and I have talked about this before, is there's different types of street vending, or there's different sections of the informal economy. Yes, which is what I would call it. So there's a section that is long, you know, predates what we see now, certainly 2008, 2009, certainly when I was growing up, because I'm older than both of you all, you know, Slauson and Crenshaw mm -hmm. has been the bootleg capital, bootleg t-shirt capital yeah. of the world since the early 80s, at least, 
I mean, I remember when I was a kid, there would be these Bart Simpson t-shirts where he was dressed up like MC Hammer mm-hmm. and it would say, you can't touch this. Mm-hmm. To be fair, I'm not that young. <laughs> I remember Crenshaw and Slauson. Were you in a stroller? But, I, yeah, I was but, not in a stroller. <laughs> I was in the back seat okay. in elementary school. In a car seat. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was okay. not in a car seat. But so that part of the informal economy was people either were blocked out of getting jobs because they had a record. And, you know, up until very recently, it was completely legal to discriminate against someone because they had a record or they just didn't want to deal with. There wasn't a word for this. Then there is now they just didn't want to deal with microaggressions on a daily basis. You know what I mean? So they were like, I'd rather stand out here and, you know, make T-shirts and sell them or shine shoes or whatever. Yeah, because I'm not going to deal with like, you know, Bob making a joke about something inappropriate every day. And I have to pretend like I like it and think it's funny. Um, And then there's the part where, you know, this is just sort of all, I think this also happens with people who are undocumented as well, right? So there's a certain section of the economy that's just- It's the only option. Yeah, it's the only thing you can do. Yeah. Um, Do you find that there are differences between what those kinds of folks need uh, versus the the person who says, you know, I make really good barbecue, really good carne asada, and I'm gonna put my cart out there and you know, eventually I'm gonna get so many customers that I can have a brick and mortar restaurant. Yeah, I think that everyone, just like all of us, everyone's mm-hmm. different and has different ambitions, you know? Um, there's some street vendors that we work with that are like, I'm good with just my car and I just yeah. wanna be able to have an ability to do this legally and have no one, have no problems. Yeah. There's others, I'm thinking one client that's like, I have a vision for a chain of brick and mortar, wow. you know, brick, brick and mortars <laughs> that are gonna do this and can you help me? And um, I think that uh, us as a community, as a city, we have to sort of think about how we can um, adapt to that and customize our services to these different ambitions because they're all equal in my eyes. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, there's no, sometimes I think uh, some of our investors are like, well, you're helping them all scale, right? I'm like, scale is defined differently for folks, you know? And, you know, and it's like, I'm thinking about my, you know, Mario, who's an ice cream vendor in the Piñata district, his vision is to have a brick and mortar. And, but right. I, but there's the one next door to him that's like, I'm good here. I just right. want to, I love the being outside and, uh, you know, I don't want to have any problems. I just want to be able to have dignity in what I do. And I think that both of those are valid, you know? The, once we start pushing everybody into one bucket, right. that's then it, it becomes yeah. like, you know, Irvine, you know? Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that, no, I think that that's right. And Irvine, and then just everybody doesn't fit. I mean, it's, it's interesting for it as much as America, the United States is built on the idea of individualism. Right. We don't allow a lot of diversity in outcomes. Yeah. It's like if you make food, then you should have a restaurant. Right. If you know you make clothes, that you should market them in a department store. Like it's right. just there's no kind of like, you know, no, I just want to sell t-shirts out of this, you know, this network of barbershops in the neighborhood. And that's all I'm going to do. I mean, I wish we would conform around some things, council member. Like I do, I do wish that we could all agree that everybody should have a place to live. There's you that. Know? There's like, that. I, like, There's I wish that. we could conform, like yeah. everyone should have a, some food to eat every day. Yeah, I think we agree on that. Day, we just know? don't agree with who's going to pay for it <laughs> and where so. it's going to be. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think they're a basic standard of living will go a long way uh, in this country, Mm -hmm. in our society. Um, So I know you work a lot in the space of of, uh, the hot button issue today in communities like the one I represent, South LA, but also East LA, certainly the Northeast Valley. Um, You know, I'm actually hearing it. I just read an article this week about Santa Ana, Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, having gentrification as a main concern for people. Um, talk to us about your thoughts on that. First, what you me- what you mean when you say gentrification, because one of the challenges with this issue is different people mean different things when they say it. Yeah. And then what you think the best strategies are uh, to help us address it. Well, you know, gentrification is, um, you know, the definition is essentially like that root word of gentry moving into a community, mm-hmm. like wealthier, more privileged people coming into a community. And um, the negative piece of it for me is the displacement that could yeah. come from that. Yeah. So you moving in usually means I have to move out. Exactly. And that's the that's like the piece of it that, you know, in this in this conversation, what I focus on is the displacement piece, mm-hmm. you know. Because I think that if a community wants investment in their community, they should be able to get that investment and should be able to stay and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, some community members uh, are displaced and they can't. And so therefore, they're afraid of even getting a new park or a a new resource because they're like, what if this pushes me out? I think that this topic is an important one, and I think that um, it's it's a serious one in Los Angeles, but in cities across the country. And I think we need to come up with some tools to address it. You partnered with East LA Community Corporation, Little Tokyo Service Center, and Genesis LA to form CORE, which is community-owned real estate. Um, it's a collaborative effort that you come together to try to, you know, have small businesses be a part of owning the real estate that they're working in, that they're working out of. How does that combat gentrification or does it at all? Is it even a strategy? It is a strategy, um, uh, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That project uh, came out of some activism that was taking place on the east side. Uh, Some folks that are listening may remember in 26, 2017, there was a lot of activism in Boyle Heights around gentrification. It was like, it was national news. And um, our organization was a little swept up into it a little bit. And, and uh, there was some activists that were wondering where we stood on this. And they were uh, they knew that we dealt with capital and we're lenders. And what does that mean? And are we part of the problem? And out of that, we really started to think about like, well, what are the solutions to this? What the activists are saying is true. We should be upset. And this should be a topic. Or at least concern. And yeah. There should be at least at least yeah. a concern, but we should be active in figuring out what to do. And, and what we started to talk about in the public discourse was ownership. That if one tool in the toolbox should be a way for us to be owners. And in Boyle Heights, in that neighborhood, uh, a lot of people are tenants. The majority of the, of the community are renters. And the small businesses specifically, are many of them are lease their space. And many of them don't even have a formal lease or month to month. There's a lot of absentee land ownership on the commercial corridors. And what we see is that a lot of our clients are often the first to be displaced because mm-hmm. they don't have that lease. They don't have anything. They don't have the same protections that, are, that a rental like a, like a housing unit has. There's no rent, there's no rent control for, for commercial spaces in the state. So we started to talk about how do we own properties? And then we basically put together like a little bit of a book club, I guess, or a lunch crew of folks that said, hey, what are we going to do about this? And that initial crew was our partners, uh, East LA Community Corporation, Little Tokyo Service Center, and then our, and then this lender that was down to take a risk, Genesis LA, which is also a CDFI. And we're like, let's figure out how we could do it. So we created this entity called CORE, which stands for Community Owned Real Estate. And essentially what we did is we basically pooled our money and then started to figure out how we could acquire buildings. And so in 2019, we ended up acquiring five together. Wow, five. Five buildings on the east side. 
uh, it's about 20 businesses. And, um, and the idea here is to preserve those businesses. So the first thing we did is sign everybody up for long-term leases. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the vacant space is about 20% of the portfolio was vacant. We basically said, how do we make this available to local businesses and nonprofits? Because nonprofits actually are struggling to find space in the neighborhoods yep. that they work in. That's right. So that's what CORE is. Um, in the next few years, we're going to be developing a mechanism to share ownership with those tenants. The The vision is to... Share ownership of the buildings or the businesses? Of the buildings. I got it. Okay. So if there's a tenant, uh, a business tenant that wants to be an owner of this their brick and mortar, we want to provide a mechanism for them to basically either join us in the ownership group or for us to figure out a way to transition ownership to them. Mm -hmm. And so that's the vision. Um, the strategy for us in inclusive action is how do we do more? And so there's a lot of discussions with my team right now about how are we going to do more of this? Uh, we have private equity firms in our communities that are coming in and buying properties quickly, but our community doesn't have a tool to respond, in my opinion. Yeah. We move so slow and, and these guys can buy buildings in a day. And so we want to figure out how do we mount a, a sort of a response to that and have our own, you know, revolutionary BlackRock. And it's very different to have a situation where I'm talking to somebody who's playing with someone else's money. Yeah. And they have nothing really at risk other than their reputation at their job. And you're talking to me about everything I've accumulated over the course of my life mm -hmm. and expect me to make a decision really quickly. Yeah. Like it's just it's not so not realistic and out of touch. Yeah. Totally. It's it's um, it, I'm glad you all are doing that. And now I'm excited. You all set the example. And so now we have a land trust in Lamert Park. Yeah, that actually has taken, you know, almost half. So, you know, the community or indigenous sort of forces own almost three fourths of Lamert Park now, yeah. which is amazing because 10 years ago, it was 0%, like, yeah, as totally. important as Lamert Park is. Yeah, and I think we don't we don't consider core land trust in the traditional sense because mm -hmm. a land trust is really uh, an, uh, sort of a movement to organize people to buy something and then there's a, there's a, there's a decision-making body that's community-driven. Core was almost a reverse. Like we bought the buildings and then we're probably, then and we're going to, yeah. But yeah. I guess the point that I'm making is that there's this emerging ecosystem of people that are trying things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we need to do more of. We need to figure out how do we invest in these experiments because otherwise we're going to get overrun. Yeah. Yep. Well, we know what the market does if you just let the market exactly do what it is. Even when people are good actors and they play by the rules, they play the game as called. Yeah you know, we still end up on the losing end of that a lot, right, right. often, more often than we should. Um, the part that fascinates me the most about your organization, Inclusive Action for the City, um, is that you take a, a strong economic approach to your organizing, to your activism. And I, I think sometimes, at least the way a lot of people consider activism, they only consider it, you know, you have to be marching in the streets for particular types of work, right? In fact, they, I would say... In some cases, people don't even talk about the business aspect of that. I love the fact that you guys not only do microloans or not only, you actually teach or support people in getting resources and supporting businesses and learning things. And so they can actually run their businesses a certain way, learn the ways to navigate these complicated systems as well as addressing public policy. Yeah. And you guys actually, the governor just signed yes. SB 972. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, thank you, Siobhan. I mean, we really believe that it has to be both sides here. We have to be able to deploy capital and get resources into the hands of people today. 
but we also need to think about these systems that are long-term things that impact people's lives. And um, I wish that I want, I want to call in other CDFIs and other lenders that they also have to weigh in and they also have to contribute and be part of coalitions that are advocating for the basics for our community members. And so uh, Senate Bill 972 is one of the, the policy campaigns that we were, we were a sponsor of this bill. Uh, and it's, it's basically uh, the latest chapter of the, the what some reporters are saying, the saga of the street vending campaign over the last 14 years. And so um, in 2018, there was some really important legislation that was passed in the city and in Sacramento that created a pathway for folks to get permits, street vendors. The city of LA created a system here to create a, to, to uh, legalize street vending. And what that did was amazing, but it was only the first step. And the reason why is because it didn't really address the extra barrier that food vendors have to go through to get their permits. If Marquise and I, if the council member and I want to start our, you know, our taco, our taco car, we go to Streets LA, the department that's responsible for that in the city of LA, and we say we want to get our permit. There's a pretty simple application. We submit it and they're going to say, oh, you sell tacos. Uh, where's your health department permit? And that is very challenging to get, especially if we're low income. It could be thirty to $40,000 to get that cart. Wow. Um, and it's so cumbersome. You have to get an architect to design a plan for your car. You have to haul it all the way to Bowen Park and you got to bring it back. It's a mission. And the reason why these rules exist is because they were designed for restaurants yep. and they're all housed in, the, in a state code called the California Retail Food Code. So Senate Bill 972 is focused on that. That's what it was focused on is amending the Retail Food Code to create a new chapter for street food vendors. Um, so in the code, as so the governor just signed it. Uh, this was a campaign that was led by vendors. There was uh, there was like 20 street vendors that were our experts that were guiding this process. Every time a legislator had an idea, we would bring it back to them, and then they would kind of go through it. And uh, the the vendors went up to Sacramento several times to make their case. And fortunately, it passed through all the you know all the committees and through the legislature. And the governor signed it about three three or four weeks ago. All right. So due to this, uh, shout out to Senator Lina Gonzalez, yes. Maria Elena Durazo, and a lot of the champions that were really behind this. Isaac Bryan spoke about this, you know, who represents part of this area. And so um, we're we, in Isaac Bryan's district. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you know, this this was a huge win for working class people. So due to this law, what it does, it creates a new definition for street food vendors called a, a compact mobile food operation that's in the code. It's going to streamline the permitting process. It's going to streamline the design requirements for street food vendors with carts. And it's going to also open the doors for new commissaries and, and home kitchens. So it's great. It's awesome. But now it's to implementation. And now it's about making sure folks have money to participate. Yes, yes, yes. And making sure cities implement because we yeah. we had to pass something this week. So yeah, uh, I'm excited, super excited, excited about that. Tell me uh, what gives you hope about the social justice movement. Uh, in Los Angeles, it seems like an exciting time uh, to be, you know, on the front lines of, of the movement towards equity and towards a basic standard of living for everybody. I think I think there's like a new generation of people that are coming up, you know, mm -hmm. that are running for office and winning and like mm -hmm. that they really want to contribute and are passionate about making their city a better place. Um, I, especially after this win, um, I've been reflecting a lot on the persistence that a lot of us have. Yes. And so um, what gets me excited about a lot of the leaders out here is that everyone's st sticking together no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. And so like that gives me a lot of hope. 
is that that's what it's going to take to confront some of the big forces that are hurting us. We got to stick together and we're not going to give up, you know? That's exciting. Uh, and it's exciting to it, it's exciting to see it come into being. One of the things about movement work is that you can be disciplined and show up every day and do the work. And then there's just these moments that things break, things yeah. go into a flow. I mean, I think about Black Lives Matter. When I first took office, no one paid attention to Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. They would protest the police commission meeting every Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I get a call, you know, this one's in jail, that one's in jail. Can you help get them out? And we would, and I would be the only one, you know, only one of a couple members doing anything. And then all of a sudden, boom, like not only do they light a spark in L.A., it's all over the world. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh, you it's didn't a, give up. If it, right. You don't give up. You stick to it. Um, and, you know, if you're passionate and have conviction about your beliefs, a lot of things become possible. Yeah. But you just can't time it and say, OK, it's going to happen by totally. this date because yeah. it might be the next day. It might be 10 years before. Right. Um, you never know. All right. So now we have to go to the lightning round. So these uh -oh. are lightning rounds are just your first reaction. A lot of questions about South L.A. We're trying to build a okay. compendium Good. of people, places and things or activities, places and things in South L.A. Um, uh, that sort of sum up the place for our guests. Uh, so your favorite song that represents South LA? I I don't have a favorite song, um, but uh, you know, I, I I was listening, I'm a big fan of like Top Dog Entertainment and the yes. artists that come out of there. So like on the way here, I was in a J-Rock and like yes. of course King Kendrick and like, you know, so those that I love when folks are, are creating an independent label and a yeah. crew and representing where they're from and so. All right. I'll, I'll name that. We'll, 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 we'll pick a TDA, TDE record for you. Uh, your favorite place to shop in South LA? Um, I think everybody, people are going to say Mercado La Paloma. A lot of my yeah. homies say that. But, you know, I think just even across the street here in Lemur Park, there's yeah. a lot of new stores and folks that are really thinking about ownership in different ways that we, yeah. you know, soul folks, of course. But you got to say the street vendors, though. Yeah. I mean, street Ooh. vendors in our community are really critical. Yeah, like no, any of them, especially, you know? yeah. Especially, especially for clothes. Like, there's just, yeah, there's just stuff totally. you can't get in the store. Yeah. <laughs> you can only get in the street. And then uh, your favorite place to take photographs in south la uh i've been a little bit out of rhythm with the pandemic but i'm a, I'm a street photographer yes like i like walking around and taking photos and so i like places where there's a lot of people so um central avenue if you just walk down central ave but yeah. i also like vermont Slauson. there's like a lot of bus corridors yeah, there yeah. and so you could just hang out and just watch people for hours exciting you're gonna publish a, a book of photographs uh, maybe 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 in a, later on instagram feed something <laughs> you gotta little, give us some because your pictures are pretty amazing oh thank you yeah. thank you it's been a while i mean it's been the pandemic really messed up my rhythm with that because we were indoors or really busy with other things. But uh, photography is an outlet for me, you know. Last question since we're talking about photography, because this is one of the ways I feel like I knew you this way before I knew you as an activist, just sort of the intersection of culture and activism in L.A. in this this time period. Uh, what do you see? What do you think about it? I think it's all intertwined, you know? I often talk to my team about swag and like how, yeah. how do we sort of lean into things and how do we tap into the courage that's in our identity and our DNA, you know, yeah. to step up and do these things, you know? But I think music gives us a lot of that. I mean, mm -hmm. music prepares me for big meetings. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, everything from Rage Against the Machine to like, you know, yeah. hip hop, you know? Yeah. It just makes me feel good. And I think that we see that in the in sort of the emerging leaders that are sort of making it all intertwined, you know? Like the like the guy that, that led the um, the unionization of Amazon. That's right. Know? That's right. Like it's amazing. Like how he's you know it's like his he's making a statement. 
when I was a, the young the youngster learning about myself, like one of my heroes and has been a hero of mine was Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm for me, as I was a youngster learning about him, what drew me to him was not only his political beliefs, but how he dressed. Yep. And, you know, he commanded authority without saying a word. That's right, that's right. And like that And to he me, talks about that in his book. Yeah, yeah, so like to me, I'm just like, man, dude, like that's amazing, that's culture. Yeah. You know? It's how you show up. Yeah. And what you present. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we've been with uh, Rudy Espinosa, the Executive Director of Inclusive Action. Uh, but one of the most outstanding and iconic uh, young leaders in Los Angeles today, and a big part of what I think is gonna lead us into uh, a new reality and a new set of possibilities uh, in what I think is the greatest city in the in the country. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record and special thank you to Felicia the Poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.